Good morning. Let's remember to keep Bob in our prayers while he's away. Today and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be turning our attention to Paul's letter to the young pastor Titus, as you know. I've chosen this book for several reasons. First, it's short and it's manageable in two Sundays. Secondly, it's addressed to people who are living in a corrupt and pagan culture, much like our own. And finally, Titus is a very practical book. It's full of how-tos for living as believers within a sin-sick society. I call this series True Liberation Theology, and in a few, re- a few moments I'll tell you why. Let's once again ask for the Lord to bless us as we turn to his word. Father, we have your word in our hands, in our Bibles, but it's just ink on a page there. Unless your spirit enlightens our thinking, clarifies our minds, and softens our heart, it will do nothing. We ask that he would do that as we turn to your word, and we pray that your good purposes would be accomplished. Thank you in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I want to set the stage for our study by considering four matters before we actually jump into the book. Those are the time when Paul wrote who this young man Titus is, the culture in which Titus was called to minister, and the need of that culture. Would you please bring up the first slide? Just push the right arrow once. Tell me when that comes up. There it is. Okay. As you probably know, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned twice. Now, if you look here, the orange here and the orange here, these are Paul's two imprisonments. Okay. Paul's first arrest is recorded in Acts chapter 21 at the end of his third missionary journey. The year was, the, was A.D. 57. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was then shipped to Caesarea. Eventually, he appealed to Caesar and was brought to Rome, where he was placed under house arrest. Now, it was during the time that Paul was in house arrest that he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, which are often called the prison epistles. He was released in A.D. 62, and he had a period of free ministry before he was arrested again. We don't know exactly when his second arrest occurred. It could have been anywhere from the year 64 to 66. It was during that time of freedom that Paul had a fruitful ministry. It was during that time that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. 2 Timothy, you know from reading it, is the letter that Paul wrote when he was expecting to be executed shortly. Timothy was one of Paul's protégés, and I always think of him as the timid one. Titus was a second protégé, and I always think of him as the titan, the strong one, the tough one, and you'll see why in a few minutes. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to organize and appoint leadership in the churches of Crete. 
Can you black that one out now, Hampton? Just hit the B button. I think it'll go away. Does that work? Yes. Okay. Now, we don't know for sure when the churches in Crete were founded. They were probably founded by Paul and Titus during that little gap, that free time during Paul's two imprisonments. There are a few writers who think that the churches on Crete were founded by Cretans who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And if you want to do this later today, go look in Acts chapter 2 and you will see that there were people from Crete in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But I think it was probably the case that Paul and Titus founded these churches. Paul says, I left you there, which suggests that Paul had been there with Titus. I also think that it's likely that they founded the churches because it's hard to imagine those churches surviving for 30 years without elders from the time of Pentecost until sometime between 62 and 65 when Paul wrote this book and left Titus on Crete. Well, let's talk now about Titus, the young pastor who Paul sent this letter to. Titus was a Greek convert to Christianity, unlike Timothy, who was Jewish. He had been a great help to Paul in Paul's earlier ministry. Titus was with Paul when he ministered in Galatia. Titus was the one Paul entrusted the sorrowful letter that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians that he sent to the Corinthians. Titus brought back the reply of the Corinthians after that letter received them, and he brought back a good report that they had repented. During that time that Titus was with the Corinthians, he seems to have developed an attachment to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that he was among those who helped the Corinthians prepare their offering for the church at Jerusalem. Titus was obviously a very capable young man. Paul trusted him to send him to the church at Corinth when there was a lot of contention between them and Paul, and Titus handled it well. He was a young man with a strong backbone, godly character, and he was able to handle difficult people and touchy situations with skill and a cool head. It's no wonder that Paul chose him to be his point man for setting up leadership in the churches of Crete, because as you'll see soon, Cretan culture was a mess, and it would take a man with a firm hand to handle that task. Well, let's consider next the place and the culture in which Titus was left to serve God. Can you hit the B again and give me the right button? One more slide. There we go. Okay. Here is the Mediterranean Sea as John was telling us. Right here in the middle is the island of Crete. Up here is Corinth. Over here is Asia Minor. You can see Ephesus there. Jerusalem is down here. Okay. The people of Crete were widely known as unreliable, uncouth, dishonest people who could not be trusted. There's actually a word in the Greek language which would sound like Cretanize in our language, and it means to lie. How'd you like to be known as the people who were liars? Paul said, as John read for us, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul commented, this testimony is true. 
Paul was quoting a Cretan prophet named Epimenides. And those words of Epimenides are harsh words, and we tend to cringe when Paul quotes them because it doesn't sound like something that a Christian would want to say about people. I've looked at a number of commentaries, and a lot of writers try to sort of soft-pedal what Paul is saying. I don't think we need to soft-pedal it or apologize it, apologize for it. I think we need to take those words at face value. The people of Crete were a mess. Their culture was a mess. What we really need is a proper perspective on what Paul says about them. For that perspective, turn with me in Titus to chapter 3. And look at verse 3. Now here Paul is speaking of himself, of Titus, of other Christians in the first century, and ultimately of us. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. I don't know about you, but that description sounds worse than what Epimenides said about the Cretans. See, the fact is, according to Paul, all people, apart from the transforming work of Christ, are corrupt, sinful, and enslaved to sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, verse 34 said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. He also said in verse 32 of that same chapter, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Sin makes slaves of men, and it's only through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his word that men can be liberated from that slavery and transformed from the evil beasts that we are naturally into people who bear God's image faithfully. That's why I've titled this series, True Liberation Theology. Now, some of you may be aware of a theological movement called Liberation Theology. Liberation Theology, in the broadest sense of a term, refers to a philosophy, it's not really a theology, that views economic oppression as the greatest evil that plagues mankind. Liberation theologians generally see capitalism as the great evil that causes economic and slavery, economic oppression in the world. Liberation theologians use portions of scripture, which they pull out of context, to argue that man's greatest problem is the fact that some men oppress other men economically, not our problem of sin and guilt before God. They don't view that as fundamental at all. They twist the scriptures to argue that the solution for man's need, for man's great problem, is political activism and the forceful redistribution, let me get it straight, redistribution of wealth. Most liberation theology is, in fact, thinly veiled Marxism. A special form of liberation theology known as black liberation theology became influential with the black power movement in the 1960s. It's still with us, and today we even have feminist liberation theology. 
Now, we as Bible-believing followers of the Lord Jesus Christ reject the idea that mankind's fundamental problem is economic or political oppression. We know that sin is what enslaves us. And we know that only the power of Jesus Christ and the guidance of his word can free us from slavery to sin. Paul's letter to Titus is a theological blueprint for liberation from the power of sin. In this short letter, Paul explains how believers who have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin should demonstrate their freedom before the watching culture around them so that men, women, boys, and girls who are still trapped in sin will be attracted to true freedom in Christ. Now, let me just show you a couple more slides before we move on. Next slide. Okay, this is a satellite photo of Crete. It looks very barren and dry, but in fact, it's a very beautiful place. That's a Kia up there. Corinth is right there. Ephesus is over here. Next slide. This is an interesting one. The Cretans had a very unique culture. Cretan religion worshipped female deities, not male deities, and all of their priests were women. This is a sculpture of a Cretan priest holding two snakes in the process of one of their religious rituals. Next slide. If you go to Crete today, you will see that there is a lot in the way of ruins, evidence of their culture. Their society was very advanced. They were traders. They had a lot of wealth. And if you look at the architecture, both of their palaces and of their ordinary homes, it's quite elaborate. Let's look at the next slide. Okay, This is an artist's rendition of what that palace we just looked, like, looked at would look like if it were intact today. You can see that this was a very impressive and elaborate culture. Now, you can kill the slides now. The culture that existed on Crete, the one we were just looking at, began around 2700 BC, and it disappeared around 1400 BC. That's 1500 years before Paul and Titus planted the churches on the island of Crete. Nobody really knows what happened to that civilization. Some historians believe that there was a volcanic eruption that buried it, and there are persistent uh, myths in Greek culture about the lost city of Atlantis. Some of you have heard of that, right? Some people think that the lost city of Atlantis was one of the cities on the island of Crete. Exactly how that civilization died, no one really knows. But by the time Paul and Titus arrived in Crete, that civilization had been dead for a millennia and a half. Crete was now a relatively insignificant island dotted with small cities, and it was something of a cultural backwater. So that's where Titus was called to minister. Now that concludes our overview of the setting of the letter to Titus. Let me give you a brief overview of the contents of the letter, and then we'll work our way through the first half of the book today and the second half of the book next week. 
Two things stand out as you do an overview of the book. The first one is the sequence of topics, and the second one is a primary motivating truth that stands at the center of the book that drives virtually everything that Paul says. Let's look at the sequence of topics first. You look down in your Bible. You'll notice that in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives a greeting and an introduction. If you flip to the end of the book, in chapter 3, you'll see that he has some final instructions in verses 12 through 15. And then if you look back in chapter 1, starting in verse 5, you find the main body of the book that runs all the way to verse 11 of chapter 3. Now, as I see it, the book breaks down into three main parts. The first part is Paul's instructions to Titus in, I'm sorry, Paul's instructions to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, through the end of the chapter, on the appointing of elders for the churches of Crete. The second part is Paul's instructions to Titus on how believers should treat each other, and that occupies the first half of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The final part of the book, major part, is Paul's instructions on how believers should live in society at large, and that occupies chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now, you notice I skipped over the middle of chapter 2, and I'll explain why in a few moments. You would also notice at the end of the book, in chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul throws in a little bit more for Titus on what he should do in the appointing of elders. He feels that that needs to be recapped. Now turn to chapter 2. The fundamental motivating truth that is behind everything that Paul teaches in this book appears there in chapter 2 in verses 11 through 14. We will give our attention to that particularly next week, but let me just read the first few words of that, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Now, I'm going to stop with the teaching us, okay? We'll get to what it teaches us in particular next week. But Paul says, God's grace teaches us something. And, of course, the us is believers in general and the believers on the island of Crete in particular. And really, everything that's laid out in this book is motivated by the fact that God has shown grace to believers, and he therefore expects something from them in return. It's not payment, it's not the earning of our salvation, but it's the proper response to grace. All right, that, include, that concludes our introduction and overview of the letter. Let's turn our attention now to the first part of the book, Paul's instructions on the appointing of leadership for the church. Now, because our time is short, I'm going to skip over the first four verses of chapter 1, even though there's a lot of good meat there. We'll look at verses, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5 through 16 in chapter 1, what we might call the challenge of church leadership in a corrupt culture. And then when we turn to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we'll look at the challenge of godly relationships in a corrupt culture. Well, let's start with 
verses 5 through 16 in chapter 1. In this section, Paul is first going to give Titus instructions on what kinds of men should be appointed as elders in the churches of Crete, and then he's going to explain why it's so important that godly elders be appointed for those churches. Listen as I again read verses 5 through 9. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop, that's the Greek word overseer, by the way, must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, Paul opens this section with a crystal clear statement of why he left Titus in Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you say, it's kind of silly. Why is Paul telling Titus what he left him there for? Surely Titus knew. I think there's an important reason why Paul makes this statement in a letter that he sends to Titus. I believe that Paul understood the character of the Cretans And he knew that Titus would probably be often challenged as he moved among the churches. Who left you in charge? And the answer, of course, is that Paul did. And Paul wanted Titus to have a formal document that he could show to people saying, I was left here by Paul. Look at this. When you submit to my leadership, you're submitting to the leadership of the Apostle Paul. Now, because our time is limited, I won't discuss in detail the qualifications that Paul lists for potential elders in verses 6 through 9. I think most of us are very familiar with those qualifications from our study of 1 Timothy at other times and from our own evaluation of candidates for eldership in our church here. Let me simply remind you that Paul, as Christ's apostolic agent, regards proper leadership the male elders of the church as absolutely vital for the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Elders are called to a very, very high standard. And if we were to work through the list, you would see that there are two categories of qualification that come out in this list. One is character and the other is capability. Elders must be men of high and unquestioned character. They must also have one particular ability, a knowledge of the scriptures and the ability to employ that knowledge. Elders must be able to exhort members of the church to follow God's will and be able to convict those 
whose behavior or teaching is contrary to God's will or God's word. That is their job. Now, having laid out Titus's mission to appoint elders, Paul now explains in verses 10 through 16 why that mission is so vital. Let's read through that again. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, that little word for that opens verse 10 is very important. It tells us that the reason why godly elders must be appointed, and in particular, the reason why they must be able, according to verse 9, quote, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict, unquote, is that the churches of Crete are full of Cretans. Sounds silly, but it's true. That's exactly the point that Paul is making. The people Paul is talking about in verses 10 and 11, the ones who are idle talkers and deceivers, the ones who subvert whole households and who do it for the sake of dishonest gain, are in the churches of Crete. He's talking about believers, at least nominal believers. It's precisely because the churches of Crete are so full of Cretans that godly elders are so important. Paul's not saying that every Cretan is as bad as he or she could be, but he is saying that within the churches there are people who demonstrate the worst characteristics of the culture at large. You know why? Because they're people just like us. It's precisely because there are people like that in the churches of Crete that godly, capable, strong elders are vital to the health of the church, and that is surely true today. Now, perhaps the greatest challenge in interpreting verses 10 through 16 is discerning exactly who these idle talkers and false teachers are. Now, several facts about them are clear. According to verse 10, they're insubordinate, meaning that they don't like to submit to authority. Some of them are called idle talkers, meaning that they love to hear themselves talk. Others are deceivers, meaning that they actually know that what they are teaching is untrue. Many of them are of the circumcision, meaning that they're Jewish. Many of them teach false doctrine for the sake of dishonest gain. And in that phrase, dishonest gain, probably both money and influence are in view. According to verse 16, 
Some of them are defiled and unbelieving. According to verse 16 again, I'm sorry, that was 15 before, many of them, if not all of them, profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. As you read through this description of the false teachers in the churches of Crete, it's tempting to conclude that they're all unbelievers, evil-intentioned infiltrators who seek to destroy the true church and attack the faith of true believers. But did you notice there are some hints that at least some of these individuals are believers? Did you catch that? Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul commands Titus to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. They're unsound in the faith, but it appears that they are in the faith. A possible explanation of that verse in verse 13 is that the first they refers to the false teachers and the second they refers to the members of the church. Do you see that? Rebuke the false teachers sharply that the members of the church may be sound in the faith. That's a possibility, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think that these false teachers are a mixed group. Some of them are true believers, misled, poorly informed, and probably badly motivated, and others are true unbelievers who want to do nothing but destroy the church. Whoever these false teachers are, several things are clear. Number one, it's the duty of the elders of the church to protect the church from false teachers and their false teaching. An elder who is not capable of discerning and correcting false doctrine doesn't meet the qualifications of his office. Number two, the goal of the elder's task of exhorting, convicting, and rebuking is dual. In the case of false teachers who are true believers, the goal of the elder's work with those false teachers is to restore them to correct doctrine so that they may be sound in the faith. In the case of false teachers who are unbelievers and agents of Satan, the goal of the elder's ministry is to expose their false doctrine so that they will no longer harm the body and no longer spew their destructive heresies. Now, the third thing is that it's not really necessary for an elder to know whether a particular false teacher is a true believer or an agent of Satan. And in fact, it's often very difficult to tell. The elder's task is the same in either case, to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Now, Paul doesn't specifically state it, but I would suggest to you that when elders do their work of exhorting and convicting, in time, the real nature of false teachers in the body will become apparent Because one of three things will happen. If the false teacher is a true believer, he will repent and be restored to sound doctrine. He will recognize that he was wrong. If the false teacher is an unbeliever and an agent of Satan, he will be exposed and leave the church. Or, and this is a good one, if the false teacher is an unbeliever and an agent of Satan, 
he may be convicted and come to faith in Christ and be rest- not be restored, but brought into the body as a new believer. Whichever one of these three things happens, God's purposes will have been fulfilled. And I say to you elders, and I say to our body at large, you elders have an extraordinary responsibility over us. And we who are of the body and not elders need to be praying for them that they can carry that duty out well. It's a hard task, and it's difficult to confront people who are teaching falsehood in the church. Well, let's move on now to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and Paul's instructions on what Titus is to teach in the churches. I like to call this section Godly Relationships in a Corrupt Culture. And I'll read it for you now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Remember, Paul is speaking to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that no one who is an opponent, I'm sorry, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, this short paragraph covers an awful lot of ground, and we could probably spend five weeks on it. I just want to make a few observations here on Paul's instructions to Titus for the believers in Crete. First, notice how that initial paragraph begins. Paul says, but as for you, teach the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now, much of Titus's role in establishing leadership in the churches of Crete would be carried out through teaching. As an apostolic agent of Paul, It's vital that Titus teach what is proper, sound doctrine. And according to verse 7, teaching what is proper is not enough. Titus must also be a pattern of good works, a model that others could see and imitate. And this reminds me here of James chapter 3, verse 1, and it makes me nervous because I'm a teacher. James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Sometimes those words make me lie awake in bed at night. Now, second, I'd like you to notice 
that Paul calls Titus to teach what is proper for sound doctrine. Now, that word sound in Greek is an interesting word. It's hugiai nusei. I don't expect you to remember that. I had to practice it in order to say it. Paul uses that word again and again in this letter. If you look for it, you'll find it. It's a form of a verb that means to be healthy. Literally translated, Paul wants Titus to teach healthy doctrine. Now, I'll bet my son is snickering over there, and I'll tell you why. See, he's snickering. I didn't even have to look at him. Some of you know that I'm a bit of a stickler about the English language. Some of you have experienced this. I ask you, how are you? And you say, I'm good. And I say, no, you're not. No one is good except God. Furthermore, the proper answer to the question, how are you, is I am well, I'm fine, I'm doing fine, not I'm good. Because a question that starts with how expects an adverb as an answer, not an adjective. (laughs) Now, another common English error that really sets me off is people talking about healthy food. We say we should all eat more healthy food, but the proper expression is we should all eat more healthful food. Healthful food is food that makes you healthy. I've only eaten healthy food once in my life. It was here in Texas in a visit back in the year 1982 when I was doing oil well geophysics here. Somebody took me out to a very fancy restaurant and fed me raw oysters. And that very healthy food, it was healthy because it was alive when I swallowed it and chewed it, (laughs) made me distinctly unhealthy. I have never been so sick in my life. And if you've been through that, you know what I'm talking about. Healthful food is food that makes the person who eats it more healthy physically. Healthful doctrine is doctrine that makes the people who believe it and obey it more healthy spiritually. Now, in Greek, it's okay to say healthy doctrine. I'm not picking on Paul's grammar. What I want to point out here is that the purpose of sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, as Paul calls it, is to make those who believe it and obey it more healthy spiritually. And that's what Paul's instructions in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 are about. Now, the third thing I'd like to point out is that the group's whom Paul instructs Timothy to teach fall into four, maybe it's five categories. No, it's four categories. Older men, older women, younger men, and servants or slaves. There's one group that's notably absent. Did you notice it? It's younger women. Paul does not tell Titus to speak to or teach the younger women at all. That job is for the older women. I think the reasons for this are rather obvious. To avoid temptation and the appearance of evil, younger men, and I would include myself in that category, although I'm not so young anymore, and older men should not be personally ministering to younger women one-on-one in the church. 
I think this is some very good advice that we need to follow in the church. Ministering to younger women should be left to the older women. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Titus to do here. Now, the last thing that strikes me is the importance that Paul attaches to the role of servants. Take a look at verse 9. Paul says, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. Some of your Bibles may translate it as slaves. It really is the word slave. Slavery was common in the first century in Roman culture. It was a little bit different than what we think of, but not that much. A slave was the property of his master. Um, You know, in a sense, it was analogous to being an employee, except the link was much tighter with the master. Paul starts at the top of the hierarchy with the older men. He moves to the older women. He jumps over the younger women because they're under the responsibility of the older women. He speaks of the younger men, and then he comes to slaves. They're at the bottom of the list in one sense, but although they're last, they are not least. Look what Paul says about them. He says that if slaves fulfill their roles well, if they serve their masters in such a way that their masters trust them, that their masters' businesses prosper, that they feel they have no fear of their slaves, but on the other hand, they are great assets to them, then these slaves, these believing slaves, will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, I just want to draw a little analogy here. If you work for somebody, that should be your goal. Your goal should be to make your boss a success, to make your company a success, to do the kinds of things that enable those who are over you in your employment to trust you completely and to see that you are there to be a blessing for them. Well, I want to finish our study of the first part of Titus with a few concluding observations. There are five things that come to mind with me. The first one is the sequence of topics in the letter. We've already talked about the sequence of, we've already talked about the sequence, but what I want to suggest to you is that the sequence of topics reflects a a hierarchy of priorities in the mind of God regarding the church. Now the sequence of topics is leadership in the church, healthy relationships in the church, and healthy interaction with the outer world. We haven't gotten to the last one yet. I submit to you that in that sequence, we see the order of importance in the mind of God. The leadership of the church is absolutely foundational to a healthy church. A church without godly leaders will not reach its full potential. Now, second in importance comes healthy relationships among believers. Only when believers love each other will the outside world take notice. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's really what chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are about. And lastly comes the believer's interaction with society at large, which we'll explore next week. Now, my point here is not merely about what God values but also a priority of prerequisites. To have a healthy church, you must have strong and effective leaders first. 
to have a church that honors God before the outside world, you, we must have healthy relationships within the church first. And that's what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says godly relationships will adorn the doctrine. And when I was in the Philippines a few months ago, I did a series in a church conference on shining the light of Christ in the world, and this is one of the books that I looked at. Remember these words of the Lord Jesus from Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The church is supposed to be a light on a hill, but it can't shine if it has no hill to stand on. Believers cannot adorn the doctrine of Christ if they've not built a foundation of healthy families and healthy relationships within the church that will make the doctrine attractive to those who are outside of the church. If we're going to fulfill our mission of bringing the gospel to those who don't know it yet, we must always keep God's priorities first in mind. Strong leadership in the church and healthy families and relationships in the church. When we do that, I believe that the light on the hill will shine naturally When we do that, I believe the doctrine will be adorned automatically. Now, the second observation I'd like to make follows naturally from the first. Take a look at chapter 2, back in Titus, verses 5 and 10. Notice that Paul says, If we fail to build healthy relationships and healthy families, we will cause the word of God to be blasphemed. On the other hand, if we do build healthy relationships and healthy families, if we live in the way that God wants to, we will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Those truths are rather obvious, but what strikes me here is that Paul doesn't say bad behavior shames God and good behavior honors God. What does he say? Take a look at it. He says bad behavior makes God's word unattractive and good behavior makes God's word attractive. If you want unbelievers to listen to you when you take them to God's word, you have to first allow them to see the fruit of God's word in your life. Now, my third observation has to do with the fact that Titus was a young man sent to appoint leadership from a pool of men who were surely older than him. And those of you who are young people, I'm speaking especially to you. The task that Paul gave to Titus would be difficult in any society. It was especially difficult in a corrupt society like the culture of Crete, which is really an Asian society in which older folks were held in high esteem and younger folks were not really paid much attention to. Now, Paul gives... Titus, two forms of assistance in that task. The first one is in verse 5 of chapter 1 where he says, I sent you to do this job. And we've talked about that 
earlier. The second piece of assistance is the vital advice that he gives to Titus in chapter 2. Now, let me read that verse to you, chapter 2, verse 7. He says to Titus, In all things show yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may have nothing to say to you. Now, flip back just... uh, Oh, a few pages to 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 12. Timothy was also a young pastor left to minister over a church. And there Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Young men, young women, listen to what I'm about to say to you. I want to summarize Paul's counsel to Titus and Timothy in one sentence, and I want you to learn this. As you seek to establish yourselves as adults, as people whose ideas and capabilities are worthy of respect and worthy of being taken seriously, take Paul's counsel. If you don't want people to look down on you, force them to look up to you. If you don't want people to look down on you, force them to look up to you. Be the kind of person that others cannot help admire, and you will find yourselves being taken seriously. Now, my fourth observation concerns the role of women in the church. You may have heard people say that Paul was a misogynist. Do you know that word? That word is becoming popular in our culture. Feminists love it. A misogynist is a person who hates women. Many feminists today that say that Paul was a misogynist. They would cite 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, And I do not per- permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. They would cite that verse as proof that Paul hated women. It's not true. The reality is that Paul held women in very high regard. And here in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul shows just how important he views the role of women in the church. Just scan over verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. Who gets the most attention? It's older women and their role of teaching younger women. Three verses. To whom does Paul delegate the vitally important job of teaching, training, and discipling younger women? Not to Titus, not to the elders, not to the pastors. That vital task is for women alone, older women. What does Paul say is at stake in how well the older women carry out that role, the very reputation of God and his word. Ladies, your role in God's church and in making the gospel attractive to outsiders is unique and it is vital. No one can fulfill that role but you. You may not lead the church. God says that that is off limits to you. But you are called to lead other women and to train them up in godly living. 
I hope that you will rejoice in that role and pursue it with vigor because the very reputation of God and his word is in your hands. Now, my last observation comes from verses 5 and 10 of chapter 2. I want to look at them again. Paul says that if Christian homes and families are unhealthy and ungodly, the word of God will be blasphemed. That's what he says in verse 5. But in verse 10, he says that if Christians live in the way that they ought to, they will make the word of God look beautiful to outsiders. My final observation is simply this. This sword cuts both ways. The sword of our behavior cuts both ways. If we obey God, if we allow his word to bear fruit and demonstrate through the way we live that we have been freed from the enslaving power of sin, we will attract unbelievers to Christ. If we continue to live the way that we did before we were believers, we will drive people away from Christ. You see, true liberation theology is simply what God's word teaches us about how to live. But the power of true liberation theology will never be evident unless we allow God's word to transform us. True freedom doesn't come from the escaping of economic oppression or political oppression. It's only found through freedom in Christ. May God enable us urge us and compel us to demonstrate the liberating power of his word to the world around us that still lies enslaved in sin. Let's pray. Father, how good you have been to us. How wonderful it is to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because your son died for us and because you have brought us to faith. We rejoice in that. Don't let us be lazy, though, Father. Don't let us forget what you want us to do. Don't let us forget the value of our liberation and the purpose of it. Grant that we may take to heart the things that Paul has taught Titus. Remind us, moment by moment and day by day, of our role in adorning the doctrine of Christ, that others may be attracted to him. We ask this with thanks in his name. Amen.